So is God bothered by our asking? Now let's declare, absolutely not. You know, as a selfish and sinful dad, sometimes I can be bothered by my kids continuing to ask something. But God is not that way. Actually, God is glorified when we ask him. Uh, I was just struck. I was over in uh, Niceville Friday teaching and, and teaching on prayer. And I had to realize that for the first 30 years of my Christian faith, I didn't know or interact with anybody where God had healed. And that's been dramatically different in the last 10 years. And do you know why? Because simply for the first 30 years, I didn't believe that God still healed. I hate to admit that, but I didn't believe. I hadn't been around anybody who genuinely believed that God still healed. And so if you don't believe that, you don't ask. And then I had to wrestle through, well, if he does still heal, uh, can I ask him uh, if I'm not sure he's going to do it? It was like, I don't want to ask unless I know. And it's the whole violation of just asking. And so... Maybe you're bound up there still. I'm afraid to ask. Because I don't want to ask and then, and then God not do it. Because what, what's that say about me? And what's that say about him if I ask him and then he doesn't? You know what it says when we ask him? It says we trust him. It's an ask. I trust you. I trust your yes. And I trust you know, I'll rejoice and whatever. And so if you found yourself, I just want to tell you, if you found yourself during that time of prayer, wrestling in your own heart, wondering, should I ask? Is it okay to ask? Uh, I'm not sure I really believe. I hope from this moment forward, you will come to a place in your heart where you believe God still works in the impossible. And we have seen in unmistakable, miraculous ways since we as a church have begun to ask, tumors disappear. And lifelong pain literally leave a body. Now you may go, I don't know about that. I understand. I didn't know about that. God works in supernatural ways. And if there's anything that I regret, it's 30 years of not asking. And I'm not sure even as a church now we ask believingly enough that when we pray, we enter into the realm of the impossible. So, uh, that was not scheduled. That's my heart, and I hope your heart will grow with it. I'm supposed to be welcoming you as the host right now. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it occurred to me that I don't think in my 31 years at CFC that I had ever gone for a period of not teaching the Word of God in some context for four straight weeks. So um, get ready. I've been holding it for four weeks now. So uh, no, I, I'm just grateful. Thanks for your kindness. Thanks for your prayers uh, over the recent weeks. Grateful that my symptoms from COVID were really pretty minimal. And uh, Jackie, my wife, 
never even showed any symptoms or tested negative. So go figure. Uh, Just really, really grateful. I want to say here south over north online, if you're new, uh, our desire is that as you connect to the body of Christ, that, that you won't just be a watcher, that you'll become a participant in community. And so there's online on our website, CFC Jacks, there's a connect card. That simply, if you go there and scroll down and click on that, it'll help you say, how could you get connected? Or if you have a question or something that we could minister to you in some way. Our desire is not to put on a show. It's not the church. The church is a community of body. And so if we can help you take a next step from listening in and watching to then connecting in some community, that's really what we would long to do. All right, Uh, we believe in this book with all our heart, the scriptures, and so let me invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 25, Genesis 25. We have been uh, out of this for the last month, the book of Genesis, but as we come back now, we're actually coming back to a new section in this first book of the Bible. We've been in it all of 2020. The opening two chapters introduce us to God, the God of creation. And then chapters 3 through 11 introduced us to the problem of evil, that the God of creation has an opposer who wants to rob him of his glory and to ruin our lives that God has given us. And then chapters 12 through 25 who primarily focus on a man named Abram, whose later his name was changed to Abraham. And he was, the Bible says, a friend of God. And so we spent numerous weeks looking at what it means to be a friend of God. And now this week, we begin this section in Genesis that we're calling dysfunctional. That doesn't sound that great, does it? Well, let me tell you why we're calling it dysfunctional. Because this section of Genesis will reveal repeated practices that bring ruin to relationship. It's going to follow the son that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. And we're not going to find much in any of their lives that we would go, let's be like that. What we're going to find in their lives is a lot of this. Let's not be like that. For the simple reason, so many of the things that were part of their lives that we'll see repeated patterns just ruin their relationships. And I don't think anybody goes, well, I'd like to have a life of ruined relationship. Right? Do you? No, but there are things that you and I can do that will do that very thing, bring ruin. And the first repeated pattern that we're going to look at this morning is the dysfunctional practice of playing favorites. It filled the life of Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Let me show you real quickly. And then we're going to look at what the scripture says about this whole idea of playing favorites. There in Genesis 25, 
verse 27, it says, when the boys grew up, those are the twin sons of Isaac. Their names are Esau and Jacob. When those boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and man of the field. But Jacob, his, by a few minutes, younger brother, was a peaceful man living in tents. And it says in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, mom loved Jacob. And then when you go into Genesis 29, you discover that, Rachel, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Well, what's that about? Well, Jacob, fleeing from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him, we'll see why next week, wanted to kill him, he flees to his uncle Laban, and his uncle has two daughters. The older one, not so good looking. The younger one, a beauty. And he wants to marry the... The beauty. But somehow, I don't know how this happens, but he gets tricked and he marries the older one. And then seven years later, he marries the younger one. So he has two wives who are sisters and he loves one more than the other. You can imagine how that would play out in the ruining of relationship. That's not hard to imagine, is it? No. So he saw favoritism in his household and Jacob passed it on to his household and not just with his wives. It says in Genesis 37, now Israel, and that's Jacob after his name is changed, loved Joseph, Joseph more than all his sons. So Jacob has a dozen sons, but he loves Joseph most of all. Because he was the son of his old age. And we'll see, well, uh, yeah, it was, he is the son of his old age. But it's a little bit more than that. So we see, if you printed out a message memo, you can see. We see Isaac favors Esau. Rebecca favors eight, uh, Jacob. Jacob favors Rachel. Jacob favors Joseph over all his brothers. But I think it's important to notice why. See, Isaac favored Esau because of his competency. He, he loved the fact that I love meat, and Esau was like a meat machine in his hunting. And so they had a bond, and he favored Esau because of his competency that the younger one did not have. Rebecca favored Jacob because of his temperament and interest. He was not the outdoors man's man hunter. He was the peaceful one. The one who liked to hang around the tents. What you and I would call a a mama, mama's boy, that's exactly right. He was mama's boy. And Esau was daddy's boy. And yeah, that brings some ruin. In fact, some of you right now are honestly going, that happened in my home. You, you honestly, this is not a funny topic. This is a stinging topic for you. Because I know some of you daughters are going, my dad actually wanted a boy and he got me. 
And I always felt like, not that necessarily he didn't love me, he just wished he had had a boy. Or some of you sons are going, I was never really the son my dad wanted. He wanted me to do this, and I just didn't like that. I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't very good at that. And a boy who grows up, who has that sense of, I don't meet my dad's expectations or my dad's desires, grows up with a real hole in his heart. So, you know, we can laugh about it, but it's pretty tender, pretty hurtful. It like ruins family relationship, right? Jacob favored Rachel because of her beauty. That's, I just want us to see that the scripture's real. How many people in our culture get favored at work or in the community or at school? They get favored for what reason? Their looks. And others get overlooked because of their looks and felt the sting of that. And then Jacob favors Joseph you know it says because he was the son of his old age and that's true but ultimately you know why because all the first 10 sons none of them were born to his favorite wife Rachel and then finally his favorite wife conceived and gave birth to Joseph and because he was his favorite wife's only child oh baby the spoiled brat of the family, right? How many of you are the youngest? Any of you? The youngest? I'm the youngest. You know, I have three older siblings. What do they say about me? You spoiled youngest, right? And all the ones who are, you're not the youngest, you're going, yeah, that's right. My younger sister, my younger brother, spoiled, But do you understand why favoritism really takes place here? It's because of who he came from. Now think about what I just said. It's because of who he came from. And just to acknowledge that one of the real stains in our nation has been our long struggle with racism. And has racism simply favoritism on steroids? It's a favoritism based on what? Where someone has come from. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not of the party saying that, hey, everybody's a racist. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that when we think favoritism, we might think, oh, that's just a little thing. But when I think where racism does exist, it's simply this right here. It's favoritism on a racial level. It's on steroids. So what's the, what's the New Testament say about this repeated practice? I want you to turn from Genesis 25. You're still there, please. Because we're going to camp in James chapter 2 for quite a while this morning. James chapter 2, so mostly toward the back of your Bible. The long book in front of James is Hebrews. 
then you'll find James almost at the back of your Bible. James chapter 2 speaks very specifically to this pattern that we see in the lives of Isaac and Jacob, the pattern of favoritism. All right, you there, James chapter 2. Well, follow along with me, if you would, for the first 10 verses. And as, you, as we read, ask yourself these two questions. All right, let me have your eyes before we read it, because this is, it always helps to go, what am I looking for as I read? The theme is, the topic is favoritism. What we're looking for is, what's it rooted in? And how does it ruin? Okay? My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. See, the Bible speaks very directly about this. Don't have that. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in this good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored that poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, in contrast to favoritism, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, which is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then, how are you doing? You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. You're not doing well. You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now pause there. I want to make sure you capture why he finishes the way he does. He speaks to favoritism should not be part of us. And then he gives an illustration, rich and poor. And he says, instead of favoritism, what should be true? Love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, that reflects God. But when you don't, you sin. And watch. And when you commit sin, even of favoritism, you might go, well, playing favorites is not great, but it's not like adultery, come on. But that's not the way God sees it. God says, if you transgress in any way, you're guilty of, of all. I think it's simply James saying, do I have your eyes for a moment? James is saying, don't dismiss favoritism as just a little thing that really doesn't matter that much. It does. Why? Because it violates the core law of what? 
the core law of love. So what is, what is favoritism rooted in? Very simply, self-love. Not the love of my neighbor, but the love of my self. Favoritism is rooted in self-love because it simply says, how can people benefit me? And I'm going to give special attention to those who can benefit me. If they're rich, I'm going to favor them because maybe I'll get some. Maybe I'll get some overflow from that. Or if they're popular, I'm going to favor them because then maybe I can get on the coattails of their popularity. Or I'm going to favor the person who's good looking because if I favor them and they get special privileges because they're good looking, maybe I will benefit from their special favors. It's not complicated. It's just a look into the heart and goes, ah, the way you're treating people is not about treating them the way God treats them. It's about how can I, this is harsh to say, but how can I use them to benefit me? That's favoritism. It's not about them. It's all about me. And in so doing, it reveals the idols in my heart. Sometimes it's easy to think, oh, idolatry, that's like making an image and bowing down to it. I don't do that sort of thing. I don't bow down to idols in my house. I don't have an idol on a shelf. I agree. You probably don't have an idol in your, on a shelf. You probably have an idol in your heart that you serve. An example of how these work together, the reason I say favoritism will often reveal the idols in our life is because Deuteronomy 1, 17 says, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You're making a judgment, don't show partiality. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man. See, what's the idol in the heart that would cause us to not judge fairly? My fear of man. My thoughts of what's most important of me, watch, is what you think of me, not what God thinks of me. That's what drives me. And if the fear of man, your opinion of me, drives me, then that's going to impact my judgments. Not to be just, but how can I do this in a manner that you'll think better of me? See, favoritism is not a small thing. Favoritism is a revealer of the heart and how selfish we can really be and how we are prone to use people and what rules in our life, the idols. The wreckage that that favoritism brings is fourfold. First, and I want to move through this because there is a cure and I hope we'll find it. The wreckage is, it obscures the true character of God. I hope you didn't miss. Well, first, Romans 1 simply says very directly, there's no partiality with God. But if you have James 2 open still in front of you, I, I, I'm really 
confronted with the fact that he's gone. Do not hold your faith in our glorious God with an attitude of personal favoritism. Why? Because they don't go together. Favoritism and one who has been identified with the glory of God don't go together. I think that's why what happens in Genesis 25 through 36, the section of Isaac primarily and Jacob is, is so ugly because God had identified his name with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. You understand what I'm saying? He had said to Abraham, I'm going to make you great, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And when people bless you, I'm going to bless them. When people curse you, I'm going to curse them because, what? I am uniting my name with your name. And then, with God's name united to them, then they pull the stunts that they pull. And they live the way they live. And God is simply saying, I'm not like that. And church, when we do it, sometimes in our home, with our own kids, or here, or we identify with the name of Jesus at work, but then we play favorites at work, we obscure the glory of our God. We don't reflect who he is. You see, it matters when we call ourselves Christians that we live by love, not by favoritism. How many sons and daughters have felt the sting of favoritism in their home. And it's caused them, if mom and dad call themselves followers of Jesus but experience favoritism, have rejected the name they have identified themselves with. It's painful, it's hurtful, it wrecks the character, his true character. Because it's unloving. But it's not only unloving to the unfavored, that's obvious. It's unloving to who else? It's unloving to the favored one as well. In other words, yes, it obscures vertically the true character of God when I act in that way. But when, when I play favorites, it's not just that the one who is overlooked, who ignores, feels the sting of, I'm not loved as much as my brother or my sister, or I'm not appreciated like my other coworker, or I get overlooked at church. Because I'm not good looking or because I'm not wealthy or because I don't have the competencies that really matter at church. And not, it's not only unloving to them, it's unloving to the person who gets favored. Just think about Jacob and his boys. They despised their dad because they favored, because he favored. Joseph. They despised him. They lost respect for dad. But who else did they hate? 
I hated their favored brother. We do, new, we do no favors to the person we favor. We make other people look at them and go, well, they got it easy. Or they got an unfair advantage. Or, of course, people look down on the favored. And it's really not their fault. It's the one who favors it sits at. So it not only obscures the true character of God, it's unloving to all involved. Third, it perverts. Oh, sorry. Just wanted to show you the contrast, though we looked at it earlier. Uh, Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. It doesn't match up. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. That's the contrast. When this, do this, it's unloving to all involved. Third, it perverts justice. Favoritism perverts justice on every level. Again, not just one way, on every level. Leviticus 19, you shall do No injustice in your judgment. You shall not be partial. This is interesting to me. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Sometimes, sometimes our remedy for the unfavored, like Rebecca to her boy Jacob, is to favor them. That's not the remedy. You can't make it up. What's the remedy? To love everyone. Hear me clearly. You don't resolve favoritism with favoritism. Now that might seem obvious, but it's a temptation we do all the time. We resolve it. Uh, uh, Moms and dads, let's be clear. We see it here. (laughs) Rebecca seeks to resolve it with favoritism. Maybe you're trying to do that. You're trying to fill the gap it's not the way you do it by favoring one and then ignoring the other because Rebecca doesn't resolve it for Jacob by favoring him if she would have simply said I love both my boys not just one of them to make up for the unlove of dad Don't be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You're to judge each one fairly. Fourth, favoritism erodes trust in the one who favors. Favoritism erodes trust in the one who favors. Here's where I take that from. If You're in James, and you go uh, just a few pages closer to the front of your Bible to 1 Timothy 
chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the last half of the chapter, you'll see there that Paul, the apostle, is writing to a young pastor named Timothy. That's why this is called 1 Timothy. He's writing to him as a young pastor, and he's teaching him about elders in the flock, elders in the church. And verses 17 through 22 deal with how an elder should function in a church. And very specifically, as it relates to this topic, favoritism, here's what he tells Timothy about elders in verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. See, what's crucial for elders, for spiritual leaders is this, to reflect the heart of the chief shepherd, which there is no partiality, that we oversee a flock without partiality. Because when a congregation sees their spiritual leaders doing what their spiritual head, Jesus, does not do, and spiritual leaders show partiality, then a congregation rightly goes, I'm not sure I can follow their leadership. And James identifies what is one of the greatest ways spiritual leaders can be tempted to show favoritism. For the rich. This is why a really, really well-known spiritual leader in our culture, I'm not going to name him, but he literally said to me in a group of other pastors, if anybody ever writes a $5,000 check to your church and you don't have lunch with them in that week, you're blowing it big. And I sat there and I thought, well, and you're thinking we're idiots then. Because a long-standing practice of Christian Family Chapel that if you don't know, I want you to know. None of your elders, especially me, but none of your elders save our executive pastor because finances is part of his oversight. None of your elders know what any of you give for the simple reason. It doesn't lead us to any temptation of... Bias. Now, we can't help it if you go out of your way to inform us. But in other words, I do not get a report on Monday morning and your elders do not get a report of here's who gave what. And I'm so grateful for that. Years ago, right in the back corner of the South Auditorium, a guy said to me, said, man, when you told me that, I was like, oh, I wish I would have known because when I came to the chapel, I determined, even though I wanted to give, I was not going to give because in every other church I went to, as soon as I gave, then everybody was calling me and I just (laughs) didn't want everybody calling me. And then I finally heard, I could give and you guys wouldn't call me because you wouldn't know I did it. (laughs) 
Now, are we appreciative of those who give? Absolutely, as unto the Lord. Not to gain favor or be favored, and our hearts seek to stay as innocent by ignorance as possible. It's a good practice. And I want to say, I didn't come up with it. I'm grateful. It was here long before I came, and I'm grateful for it. And so we can be called idiots. I'd rather be called an idiot by that guy and not be tempted by what the scripture says one of the great temptations would be. So it obscures the character of God. It's unloving. It perverts justice and it erodes trust in the church. So what's the cure? Just take a moment, look up at the scripture I'm going to read to us and listen for the cure. There's some underlines as cues. (laughs) The cure for favoritism. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you have put on the new self who is being, what? Renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Make sure you understand what what that verse is saying there. It's simply saying that when I, before I trusted in Christ, I, has, I have what was called an old me, a flesh that loved only me. But when I've been born again through trusting in Jesus, there is a dying of the old self and there is, there is now a new self. And that new self is being renewed. It's what we read earlier during our time of worship that... Each of us as believers with unveiled face are being transformed from one degree of glory into another, even into his image by the Spirit. That our old self has been given a new self and that new self is to be growing to be like him, the image of the one who created him. The passage continues, a renewal in which... Here's how we ought to be growing, in other words. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. See, the cure for favoritism, it's not complicated. It's godlike. It is a love of whomever without distinction. It's to love whomever. Why? Because that's how we've been loved by God. And (laughs) it's who we are to be being made into. The cure is to love whomever because 
That's how we have been loved by God, and we are being made new by him to reflect him. This is why I want to say from the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob, let's not repeat what they repeated. We will do so naturally. As much as you might think, oh, I would never do that. Every one of us will naturally play favorites. It will only be by the supernatural work of God in our hearts that we will begin to love, not in a self-serving way, but to love as we have been loved. You tracking with me? So if we're going to not be guilty of favoritism, if we're going to grow in that sort of love, two things have to take place. First, a repentance of my own selfishness. It really is there a reason why Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door the 95 thesis and the first one being all of life is repentance. I don't know if you know that. That's the first line that he nailed to the door. All of life is repentance. A repentance of my selfishness or a repentance of my self-righteousness. Uh, that I don't need to repent. A repentance of the thought that I don't need to repent. It always begins with, Lord, I know I'm prone towards living life in a manner that always has this driver. What benefits me? What benefits me? What will work for me? What will serve me? And we're only going to grow in our love which is the, opposite, the love of whomever, the opposite of favoritism. We're only going to grow in that if there begins to be that continual recognition of the need to change my mind about living for self. In your marriage, in your family, at work, at church. In every arena, to not live for myself. And... To not live in fear. You see, the, the, the reason we're often prone toward favoritism is because we're afraid of people who aren't like us, who don't love the things that we love, who who elevate different things than we elevate in life because that person might make me feel inadequate or they might make me feel like I'm not complete or they might make me feel like, oh, to relate to them is going to be hard and I don't want to have relationships that are hard. I want to have relationships that are easy. Don't you want, don't you want that? I just want relationships that are Easy. I want to love people who are easy to love. You know what Jesus says to that? <laughs> yeah, join the crowd. Everybody loves people who love them. Everybody loves people who are easy to love. What makes us 
defines us as Christ followers? What makes it clear that we're children of God? When we love people who aren't like us, when we love people who won't benefit us, but that's scary. And so fear often keeps us in our own lanes of people who like us and people who are like us and people who kind of do what we do and think what we think. And then watch, watch. It's not a love for whomever. It's a love for the people who are in my lane and only in my lane. Is that the heart of God? No. Lord, I repent of my selfishness that just wants to live life for me and my fear that keeps me very narrow in life. When you are the God who loves whomever. So it begins with repentance. And I can't, I can't hardly imagine, if you're listening right now, that in some way the Spirit of God isn't bringing some faults into your own mind. Wow, Lord, that's really true of me. I am afraid to to love people different than me. I am pretty selfish in my relationships. I tend to just gravitate to people who will serve me. It's natural. It's not supernatural. So when there's a change of mind, a repentance doesn't stop there. Because we can repent all day. But a change of mind says, no, I'm going to take new actions. And I want to identify three new actions towards those who are not like me. Three new actions toward those who cannot benefit me. In other words, to, to broaden my love and my relationship with whomever. Three specific intentional acts. First, an act of invitation. Inviting people into your life, inviting people into your literal home, inviting people into your church who can't benefit you and who aren't like you. But you're an inviter because God is an inviter. What did Jesus say very simply about himself? I came to seek and to save the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave that whoever, God is an inviting God, yes? Yeah. Why are you in relationship with him? If you are. Only because he invited you in. My first six years here on staff was, the, was as the youth pastor. And uh, when I started as a youth pastor, it was a very typical youth group. And I can point to not myself, but to a few individuals, youth in our youth group, who really brought radical change to our youth group. And one of them is a guy named, 
he was then just a teenager, went to Bowles High School named Justin Brown. He's now one of our commended missionaries. But Justin impacted our youth group so dramatically, not because he was a great speaker. In fact, I don't think he ever stood up in front of our group and ever talked. And he wasn't a musician. He wasn't, quite frankly, a phenomenal leader. You know what he was? An inviter to whomever. We had so many kids come to our youth group who would have never come to our youth group except Justin invited them. And then in our youth group, if there was uh, (laughs) his dad, some of you might know his dad, Bennett. Bennett said one time, I came home to my house after being out of town for the week and there were like 50 high schoolers in my house. And one of them came up and said, hey, introduced himself and said, hey, I'm so, who are you? And then it was like, uh, this is my home. <laughs> but Justin didn't just invite people to his house. He invited anyone to his house. And not by just standing up and saying, hey, you're all invited. <laughs> he would go out of his way to invite personally. And when people overheard who might not have thought, am I invited? So inclusive in his invitation. If CFC, this, if we're going to be more like our chief shepherd, if we're going to be more like our God, we're going to become more invitational, not of always the same people in our lane, but the invite of whomever. It reflects the heart of God. And then hospitality. You may think, wow, these are, these are not what I expected. But transformed people invite whomever and welcome whomever. See, there's a difference between inviting and hospitality. Because hospitality is how I treat the people who showed up, whether I invited them or not. And you know what hospitality in the scripture literally means? The love of strangers. The love of strangers. It's, I don't know them. I don't know who they are, but I welcome them. I I go out of my way to make sure that they understand Though we don't know you, you're not a stranger here. You're welcome here. One of the most powerful moments for us as a church years ago did a series called No More Strangers, No More Strangers, a play on the word no, no more, and no, K-N-O-W, no more strangers. So we took two of our staff, a man and a woman, And put them in disguise and they stood in our foyer. And they were in good disguise. One of them was Carolyn Phillips who had at that time probably been on staff by 20 years. And she was so disguised she stood in our foyer just to see what it was like to be a stranger at CFC. Then I had her come up at the end of the message and say, tell us what's it like. 
And I'll never forget it. Some of you probably remember. She stood here, and with tears streaming down her face, she said, first I want to say, I am sorry to every person that I've ever walked by in that foyer. Because this is a horrible place to be a stranger. See, she knew what it was like to be Carol and the staff member and stand in that foyer and have 80% of the people say, hey, Carolyn, hey, Carolyn, greet her as they walked by. And now she was a stranger, and she experienced person after person just look at her and just walk by. Now, I always get this question, yeah, but, but I don't know if people are new or not. It's not the question. It's do you know them or not? I made the mistake right over here by that pillar where Kevin and Abby are. Uh, this was years ago. Uh, I saw a guy I didn't know, and I said, hey, are you new here? <laughs> he was an older guy. He looked at me. He said, son, I've been coming to this church for 17 years. And I stood there feeling like a fool and saying to myself, don't ever ask that question again. <laughs> so it's not, are you new here? It's, I don't know that I know your name. Have we met? Now, I don't know everybody's name, but I'd like to. And that's a, a hospitality. We're never going to get past the typical cultural favoritism of we love the people, talk to people, hang out with the people we already know, unless we stay, no. We're going to practice biblical hospitality, the love of strangers. We're going to, no more strangers, no more strangers. And then, not just welcome, but a willingness to serve. Jesus made it really clear. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so, it's really true. Every person who is part of the body of Christ is intended to serve. And there's nothing wrong with being recognized for your serving. But if you won't serve unless you're recognized, then we're missing the heart of our God. So, invitation, hospitality, service. To whom? Not everybody in our lane, but to people who aren't like us and who won't benefit us, but it will reflect the heart of our God. Lord, would you grow us in that way? Would your words speak to our hearts and would in the coming weeks and months we have new levels of repentance and new actions to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. I hope you'll actually take a minute and introduce yourself to a masked person or an unmasked person you don't know. God bless.